Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day you've given us. We pray for your blessing upon our time together. We pray, Lord, for your spirit to be with us, to open our eyes and our hearts to your word, and to teach us to conform our lives more closely to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder if this, Father Gritter, I wonder if there's something, is there a bass too high on that maybe or something? Because I'm hearing it too. So anyway, before, while he's uh, working on that one, um, just by way of reminder, how many of you, this is the first time you've been to the E100? Okay, so fair number. Fair number. How many of you are returning? How many of you don't know? <laughs> okay. So I'm just playing. I, uh, we, as I mentioned, last fall we started this, and it was very well attended. And I, because we had the diocesan convention and we had the annual meeting of uh, the past couple weeks, which were very busy, I think I've neglected to announce it on Sunday morning. So I think next week it might, we might have a few more people here in attendance, but it's still a good crowd. Uh, in case you're not, if this is E100 is new for you, or you want to, just by way of reminder, um, E100 is, uh, is that better? Is that a little better? Yeah, okay, okay, good. Uh, E100 is the top one, well, the top 100 texts of the Bible. So uh, the top 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament texts. And of course, the obvious question is, well, who gets to determine what the top 50, right? Um, it was actually an Episcopal priest, and I can't think of his name, but if anybody knows, throw a flag. Uh, an Episcopal priest who came up with the idea of these 50 texts, 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament. And why they, these texts are selected is very important. Um, how many of you are familiar with the term biblical theology? Anybody ever heard that before? Okay, biblical theology is a, means the theology of the Bible, meaning that the Bible from Genesis to Revelation even though it's written by over courses of millennia and many, many different authors and different styles and different um, types of text, that the Bible all hangs together. There is a story that starts all the way from Genesis 1 and completes itself at the end of the book of Revelation. Does that make sense? And so, um, so, the, so the E100 is, spends time in these texts, particularly in the Old Testament, setting up narratives and recurring themes and sort of threads that permeate their way through the entire text. So you'll see, for example, today, some stuff which prefigures some New Testament stuff. I hope you see it anyway. If you don't, I'll point it out. Um, but that's kind of the whole mission of the E100. It's not to be a detailed study of, say, uh, Philippians or something, which is a lot of fun where you take one text and just dive into it real, real deep. Um, this is more of an overview class, and so it's meant to paint a picture of how this book works. And so the idea is you might, somebody might mention to you 2 Kings chapter 11, and you have no idea what's in 2 Kings chapter 11. I don't either, off the top of my head. But I know what it's about. I know it's in there. And you would have a pretty good sense of what that text is about. That's what this class is all meant. It's meant to give you a meta-narrative. So that's what we're doing. If you want a detailed... Hebrew exegetical class, this isn't the one. But if you want, an, you want a meta-narrative class about the entire Bible and how it works and how to read it, this is it. So, that makes sense? And uh, we had a lot of good reviews from last year, and I hope you guys enjoy it this year as well. So, we're going to look today, uh, we, as you know, we traced our, this is session eight. And so, for the first seven weeks, we went through creation and the fall and... Uh, Abraham and a Abram and then the whole Sarah and Pharaoh incident. Remember that? She's my sister. All that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> one, thing I, one thing you see repeatedly in the texts also is that God's rock stars are A, uh, the most unlikely of people, and B, not very good people frequently. Uh, the one thing that they do always is accept God's call. Sometimes, um, <laughs> not terribly willingly, but that's what makes them distinct. And God works on these people, works to regular people like you and I. So today, if you remember Abraham, Abraham, remember, he was, a, he was a nobody, and he was called out, and God said what? Does anybody remember sort of high level what God told Abraham to do, or Abram to do? He said, go 
And he gave him a, he gave him a strategic plan, didn't he? Yeah. Tell him, told him all the details. Well, high level. And God promised Abram, and later on Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations. And then, and then also, God said, we talked about this before, God created a covenant with Abram, Abraham by this time, his name's changed. And does anybody remember what the covenant was? It was a covenant that God said between Abram, Abraham and his seed forever. Remember that? Remember God splits the cow or the, or the animal in half and then, the, and then the, 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 the torch passes through the halves, but, but Abram never does. Remember, you recall that? And, the, and what, what God was doing was he was saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you and your seed forever. Ordinarily, both members of the covenant walk through the split animal to signify, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, you can kill me. In other words, I'm making my covenant to the point of death with you. In that story, God, the, the torch, passes through the two halves, but Abraham never goes. Remember that? Crucially important scene for two reasons. First of all, God makes a covenant with Abraham without Abraham having to come along and actually keep the terms. It's called grace. We find that out later, right? The second really cool thing, and it's an important theme that Paul picks up later, is when God makes his covenant, he makes it with Abraham and his seed forever. Here's the weird thing. That word seed in Hebrew is singular. So God is making a covenant with Abraham and his seed here, but this seed here is a person, an individual. It sounds like it'd be all the, and, and God also makes promises with the Jews at large, but the covenant is with Abram and some unknown individual who will be revealed down the road, who we know as Jesus. But the point I want you to see here is all these things in the New Testament get set up in the Old Testament, and it's really cool. So, that clear? That's a, important stuff. So, today we're going to look at um, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. Now, Abram the covenant is made with Abraham, and God says, I will, make, I will give you a, 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 an ancestor. Remember that? And, and Abram is very patient, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and then what happens? What? He's old. He's old. He's, well, he's older than he, his wife is unable to have children, and he's old. So, uh, but he, so he, remember he hatches a plan that uh, Abram has relations with Hagar. Remember that? takes matters into his own hands, don't ever do that by the way, and creates a son named Ishmael. This is a really important thing too, right? So Abraham sleeps with Hagar and they have a son named Ishmael. He is a son of Abraham, but he's not the son of Abraham and Sarah. Kind of like Abraham kind of jumped the gun, right? Ever do that? Of course you do. We all want to control our situations rather than waiting for God to do it. So I hope you see a little bit of you and Abraham here, because I certainly see myself in that. But then something interesting happens. God has, God's promise is fulfilled, and Sarah bears a child and names him what? Isaac, which means he laughs. Remember when, when God says to Sarah and Abraham, I'm gonna, you're going to have a son, and she laughs? Well, it's a huge play on words because now God gets the last laugh, right? And calls the boy, and they name the boy Isaac. He, he laughs. The he laughs is God. Anyway, so today we're going to look at, so there's a, but there's a problem hanging out there. Do you see it? God made a covenant with Abraham and his sons, but there's a problem is there's a son in the way that was not part of the plan. So how is God going to solve this problem? And that's what we're going to look at today. And then we're going to look at the sacrifice of Isaac, or the... the uh, close call sacrifice. Are you all with me? Any questions or comments? I go fast in this. Um, anybody have any observations you'd like to offer before I launch in? No. Okay, we're going to read, um, we are going to read chapter uh, 21 on page 15. Well, we're making progress, page 15. <laughs> and we're going to read through, uh, through verse 21. Would anyone like to read it? How about if I read it so it's on the camera? But if we do that, and if you've got a Bible, I, incidentally, I would like you all to bring Bibles with you. I was giving you handouts before, and I, and I, 
it occurred to me I'm doing you a disservice by doing that because I want you to learn how to use these. So bring a Bible or we'll have them here for you. And we also have the text up here in case um, you want to look up there instead. So here we go. Chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God has commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac, his son, was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me will laugh over me. And he said, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah that Sarah would nurse children? Isn't that beautiful? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Let me stop there for one quick second. Um, sometimes when you read Hebrew, frequently when you read Hebrew, it seems kind of clunky the way it's worded. So for example, um, it seems repetitive. Do you pick up on that? God created, had Abraham, had bore, Sarah had a son, and the son was named Abraham, or Isaac, and it kind of is, repeats itself. So for example, verse two, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time in which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. I, I'm trying to show you something. Hebrew, that is not, one of the theories of the Old Testament is that several people wrote it and they stitched it all together. There's another plausible, and I think more plausible explanation as to why the text sort of is repetitive, and that's because these texts were frequently memorized. In fact, they were memorized by rabbis. If you're gonna teach your child how to memorize something, what do you do? Make it repetitive and make it rhyme. Or you use a play, play on words, like Isaac. So when you hear the wording sound clunky or wooden or repetitive to you, to us it sounds weird. But what the Hebrew writer is trying to show you is emphasis. Does that make sense? You will, you will also see sometimes in the Greek, when we get to that later, you'll see the word behold. Does anybody here ever use the word behold when they speak? I never do. But there's a Greek word, eduo, which is a, an emphatic, and it means whatever comes next is really important. So some translations actually keep behold in it um, as an idiom to show you it's a marker. So in Hebrew, when you see repetition, it's a marker saying, this is important, pay attention. And when you see the word behold, it means this is important, make, pay attention. So that's just a device. Um, so God has promised his son, uh, Abraham a son, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had told him. What does that tell you about God's nature? He keeps his promises, doesn't he? Even though, even though Abraham and, had done something he should not have done, by fathering a child through another woman. Um, what does that tell you about God's nature? Does God require you to always get it right for you to be an heir of his promise? He doesn't give up on you, Bill Shanklin said. And he's also very patient with sinful people like you and I who blow it from time to time, right? Father Gritter never blows it, but I do all the time. And uh, God is patient with me. And I want you just to see here how God had promised Abraham and eventually he delivers. And I guess Sarah delivered too, because she had the baby. So, so let's go into this. I, I, wanna, I don't want to spend a lot of time in this. I'm going to spend more time in chapter 22. But just to point out, keep the story going. Okay, so uh, verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great, great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. There's that repetition again. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Uh-oh, here we go. This is what happens when you are polygamist. <laughs> when you have, and the child grew and was weaned. Abraham is very excited. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. What is, what is Abraham doing when he's weaned? Abraham is he's doing what? He's, he's celebrating. He's happy. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, Ishmael, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. See the play on words? Isaac's name is he laughs. Sarah sees the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, and he is laughing. Ishmael's laughing. 
don't, something important here that I want to point out to you that's a subtlety in the text, but it's important for you as consumers of Scripture to understand. Do you see here? It's very subtle, but I want to point it out. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian. Does the guy have a name? What's his name? Ishmael. Why do you think he's referred to as the son of Hagar, the Egyptian? Because he's, right, it's a, it's a double slap. It's an insult. In the first hand, by not using, it's like me saying, yeah, that guy back there, instead of saying Father Gritter. And secondly, by saying, pointing out, reminding the reader that Ishmael is an Egyptian, is making the emphasis that he is not the child of promise. Does that make sense? He's a foreigner. And we don't even name him because he's a foreigner. So the point being here, Sarah has a subtext here. And not only that, she sees the boy laughing. What would you do? <laughs> what would you do? What do you think he's laughing about? Maybe, maybe Ishmael's, maybe the son of Hagar the Egyptian is having a good time. The, the Hebrew word there is actually kind of unclear, but there's two ways to look at it. Either hey, um, Ishmael is mocking what's going on, right? Because Ishmael's considerably older. In any event, hear this, what Sarah hears is what? An insult. And it's important. How many, people, how many times have you done something which somebody totally misunderstood you? Ever happened? Never. <laughs> okay? The point I want you to see here is Sarah sees this child laughing. It's that word laughing repeating itself again. And so Sarah says to Abraham, cast out this slave woman. Again, no name, using her, referring to her as a slave woman. Cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be the heir with my son Isaac. And that very thing was displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. What would he do? But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever, this is interesting, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is actually an incredibly practical series of events that occurs here, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Um, and I will, verse 13, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Even though you didn't do it the way I told you, Abraham, he'll be famous too. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took a bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. You need to know something about these two kids. And this is another recurring thread, which we're going to talk about next week. Uh, Isaac is the child through which Jews trace their lineage, right? Abraham, Isaac, and then we'll see Jacob. Who does Islam traces their lineage through Ishmael? And what the, what the Quran says, you need to know this. Do you, see, do you notice the, uh, the antagonism immediately between Ishmael and Isaac? Okay. Ever wonder why those two, the Jews and the, Muslim, and the Islam are always at odds with each other? They're not actually historically having, and there's a lot more politics involved with this too. I'm not minimizing that. But historically, there is animosity between those two groups because both of them claim to be descendants of who? Abraham. And therefore, both of them claim to be the child of promise. However, uh, Isaac is the child of promise according to the Old Testament, and Ishmael is the child of promise according to, guess what? The Quran. The Quran says that, that the texts were modified by the Jews, Israel, to make Isaac the son of promise rather than Ishmael. You just need to know, this might seem like a, a story that's a little bit clunky and weird, but it actually has importance, political importance even today. What do you make of that? Yes, Sarah Shanklin. Can I ask a question? Certainly. Uh, that's why we're here. Today, historically, you are determined Jewish because any man could fire a child and right. not necessarily know who the parents really were. Okay. Uh, and this, this is all early on before they've gotten into more regulations, so to speak. Uh, but does, it, does this have any bearing on any of this? I don't know. The question is... 
The question, yeah, that's a good question. The question is, Hagar is not Jewish, right? So she, so she would not be, a, she's an Egyptian, and which the text points out, makes that note, right? Uh, making the point, she is, Hagar is not Jewish. She is not a Jew. Therefore, she is out, Ishmael is, according to the Jewish understanding, is outside of the covenant promise, right? But so, Uh, the Quran says that, this, that, the, that the book of Genesis was modified. The Quran, you know how the Quran works? I'll get into this just very, very briefly. The Quran says that this book is the word of God, but errors have crept into it. And so the angel uh, Maroni, is it Maroni? Yeah, that's, that's, that's uh, not Larry. It's the same, it's actually the same exact dynamic. Uh, Gabriel, right? Gabriel brings Muhammad the book of the Quran which contains all of the correctives to the errors that have been introduced into this book. That's the, that's the Quran's premise. So the Quran says, yeah, this book is, is valid, but there's errors in it, and the Quran corrects the errors. Therefore, the Quran supersedes the, scripture, the Bible in terms of its scriptural authority. But the Bible is not completely alien, it just has errors that have crept into it. We'll talk about that another day. That is an easily, well, that's a very historically, well, We'll get to that another day. That's, that's a whole kettle of fish uh, we'll get into. But that's the, that's the point. Okay, any other questions? Nothing? Okay, good. Let's look at chapter, I'm going to skip ahead. Does anybody want to talk about the treaty with um, Abimelech? I don't. I want to move to chapter 22. This is the, this is the good stuff. So, so God says to Abraham, so finally the, uh, the Ishmael is cast out. God provides for him, if you're going to continue to read. God provides for Ishmael, and Ishmael grows up and becomes a hunter and a man of, uh, of uh, war. And then Isaac is, and then, I, and then we, we flip over to the Isaac story, which we're going to look at right now. So, chapter 22. Um, you all know this story, and I'm hoping I'm going to open your eyes a little bit about it. Chapter 22. So, fast forward. After these things, so after the... Ishmael incident and Hagar going off into the, into the wilderness and God providing for them. After these things, God tested Abraham. What, what does it mean when to say that God tests somebody? What do you think that means? God gives you a challenge, right, to see if you will follow through. Is that, uh, there is a principle in scripture uh, which you see again over and over again, Job, I mean, there's all sorts of examples, Jesus, where God tests a person to see if they've got what it takes. But here's the question. Wouldn't God already know that? Does God test people to see if they pass muster? Or does God test people to prove God's muster? Does that make sense? Do you understand the difference? A lot of people read this. You know, somebody once said to me, oh, this is just God kicking Abraham in the knees so he can pick him back up again. I think that's who's a famous philosopher that said that. We, when God tests Abraham, God is testing Abraham to see if he will do what he will do, right? There's no doubt about it, which we're going to get into in a moment. But is God ever changed? To be tested means that somebody realizes something about the situation that they didn't know before, right? So does God ever change? No. Do you? Yes. So if God is testing to see if somebody will be changed, who is the recipient of the change? Right? It's the, the person being tested. Any of you ever gone through, and the answer is yes, any of you ever gone through a part of your life where you were just like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And maybe you couldn't do anything. All you could do, which is sufficient, is lean on Jesus to save you. Ever been there? If you haven't, you will. <laughs> uh, when you come out the other side of that and you look back on that in your life later on and you go, wow, how did I get here, right? What, look, what, look what God has done for me. Was that a test? Yes. But who changed? You did. Does that make sense? Any observations about that? People, if you don't, if you don't understand that grasp, that idea in scripture, People, God will seem awfully cruel, <laughs> and he will seem like he's somebody who's sort of arbitrary and likes to sort of, he wants his people to sort of learn to be completely servile to him. 
What God actually wants is for you to learn to trust him. That's the whole point of why you're alive, and me too. And the way you learn trust is by being forced to do it, and then seeing that he delivers. Amen? So the person being tested is not God. I'm sorry, is Abraham. Abraham's faith. So, let's go back to this. You ready? God, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Does that sound familiar? Remember when Abraham was minding his own business in the fields, and God said, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. Remember that? Back in chapter 12. It's the same, it's the same idea. Abraham said, here I am. God said, that's the he there, God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Um, notice something here, that the, the progression in verse 2. Take your son, okay, your only son, in other words, there ain't other, your only son of promise, the one you've, your only son, whom you love, and kill him. What do you make of that? Is that cruel? Well, what is, what's actually, what has actually happened? Why would God ask Abraham to do that? What do you think? I'm sorry? Because what? Oh, sure, we've all thought about it. <laughs> but why? I'm sorry? Who? Okay, yes, it's, it's an ultimate test, but still, why would God pick that thing? Okay, Abraham's whole life for the past 25 years has been focused on waiting for what? Isaac, a son. Uh, a son as an inheritor. If you're a man, you're an ancient Near Eastern Jew, your son was, and the inheritance, that carries on your family line. We, we Americans still kind of have this idea, but for a Jew, this was... Your whole life's goal was not to retire and move to Florida. Your whole life's goal was to have a son who would carry on the name and would carry on the farm and would do all these things. Does that make sense to everybody? So Abraham's whole life has been focused on one thing, and that one thing is a kid named Isaac. And that's why God says, what, what, has, God, what has Abraham turned Isaac into? an idol. Do you see it? God, because God, God wants to see, Abraham, Abraham, are you really properly ordered in your affections and your understanding of what really is important to you and what really makes you you? So he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God is always trying to knock your idols out of the park. You ever notice that? God is always trying. Anybody here have an idol? I mean, not an idol like a statue. But if anybody here has something which you rely on, it might even be your, it might be your kids. It might be your wealth. It might be your house. It might be your, it might be your church. <laughs> it might be. We've all got these things. And God is always trying to wrest our hearts away from them because they don't deliver. Do you see my point? And, so, and, and, and the second thing here, too, is Abraham, another reason why God is doing this, we don't know that here, but we'll know later. Abraham is going to be the progenitor of who? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And who comes out of the 12 tribes of Israel? Jesus, Jesus Christ. So Abraham's faith, this I find to be fascinating, Abraham's faith has to be rock solid. If Abraham fails... In his call, you could argue this, actually. It's a debatable point. But the salvation of the world through Jesus Christ, which is not debatable, comes through the lineage of Abraham. He's got to be strong and clear on who he takes his orders from and where his affections lie. How can Abraham be certain this is God? Oh, um, I don't know. That's a good question. He knows. He says, here I am. How, Charlie asked me, how does, how does Abraham know that God, that it's God making that question? I don't know the answer to that because the Bible doesn't say. But Abraham is in a relationship with God, right? And he knows when he hears him that this is God's word. I, I don't know, actually. But there's no doubt on Abraham's mind who it is. 
Um, I lost my train of thought there. So anyway, Abraham says, take your son, your only son, to the mountain, which I will show you, and offer him there, uh, on the, which I shall tell you. So what does verse 2 say? Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took one of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. Does Abraham do it? He goes. Do you think he would have gone? No. Do you think so? I don't know. Well, well, Abraham, remember, Abraham is, an, Abraham is a man who is always called and is obedient to God's will. I mean, he makes mistakes like the whole Pharaoh, Sarah, sister, my sister thing. <laughs> he's a sinner, but he's obedient. And the obedience of Abraham is absolutely critical for the salvation of the human race. If Abraham fails, then that means Isaac is not born, or is, uh, Isaac is born, but if Abraham fails in his ministry, that means the entire salvation of salvation history comes to an end. It's kind of like, I've often wondered this, and I've, pre I've mentioned it, I would never preach this because I don't know the answer. You know when Jesus, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, Mary, I got, a, I got an idea, you're gonna have a son named Jesus. What if she'd said no? What if she did? But I want you to understand something crucial in that. God, listen, think about how much God places, how much, how do you put this? What am I looking for? How much, uh, how much respect and dignity and, and how, much, how much he's counting on us to fulfill what he's called us to do? What if Mary had said no? Who knows? What if Abraham had failed? Who knows? But, bo but notice in both those cases, and there's lots of other examples, God is relying on human volition to fulfill the salvation of the, of the world. I find that fascinating, and I find it incredibly humbling, frankly. Do you agree with that? Do you see my point? Yes? I was just thinking as you were talking, Jesus says, let this cup pass the world. He doesn't even want to That's right. That's right. So in a way, it prefigures from the very beginning with Abraham what's going to happen. Which is obedience, right? Which is, which is actually obedience, knowing it's God, right? There's no doubt to Abraham that this is God. And secondly, being obedient to the call, even though it's, it's terrifying. God is trying to prove to Abraham that God is faithful, and we'll see that in a minute, and God is trying to get Abraham to shift his idol from his boy to God. That's not, a, that's not an idol anymore. You had a quick comment? Yes. Okay, I'm not, I, that's, a, that's a, another whole thread. I, I'm, I, when I teach this scripture, I go based upon this being the word of God, and so somehow, I don't know the answer. It's an argument from silence. How did Abraham know that it was God? That's what Charlotte asked. I don't know, but he did. And I would argue, just because someone says it's like, and two, another thing too, uh, Abraham did not have this. The only thing that they had was direct theophany, it's called a theophany, God speaking to us. There was no Bible. So what I would say to you, we are, we are at a distinct advantage today, frankly, because we have this book, which we claim is the word of God, right? And so therefore, if I'm laying in bed and I get something which I think, you know, Father Chris, go rob a bank, I know it's not God's word because it's counter to this. Does that make sense? Um, Abraham did not have this book. Abraham is, and none of these people did before scripture was written. They went based upon God speaking to them directly. What did he do to, pr to prove that it was him? I don't know. I can't answer that because it's not in here. That's right, God always provides evidence for his truth claims. Somebody else? Uh, yes? One of the things that's always struck me in mm -hmm. this is that God is very specific. He tells him, your son, and we've all, we've just, we've just gotten rid of this one. Right. So he's very careful because he's saying it's Isaac. That's right. Yeah, God isn't, the text is, is crystal clear that Isaac is the son through whom the covenant will be made. Remember, the covenant is with Abraham and his seed, and, that, and the seed is a singular, but it's also going to have to be part of this progeny thing that's going to come through. So, um, yeah, Isaac is clearly the child of promise. In this, and so Abraham had to wonder, well, if I kill him, how is this going to continue? Wouldn't isn't that the obvious question? Look at what he says. So, um, um, we're over here, around verse on the um, on the verse four. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. To lift up your eyes is a Hebrew idiom, which means he's he is totally focused. 
And he's now clear on where he's going. In other words, he's kind of going where God, in a general direction, but now he's got clarity and he's intentional. That lift up your eyes means that, okay? Um, and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Um, if he's going to kill his son, how is he going to go worship and come back with him? Well, that's actually part of the thing here. He says, uh, in fact, if you keep going down there, um, stay here with the donkey, and stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Somehow, Abraham believes that they're going to come back. But I, the, the, primary, the understanding would be here that somehow God is going to raise Isaac from the dead. Right? That's another whole, do the Jews believe in resurrection? That's another whole rabbit trail. I, I, it's a great thing to talk about, but not for today. Um, and then look at verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac, his son. Does that sound kind of familiar to anybody here? <laughs> when Isaac, so Abraham takes, uh, the, took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Does that, does that sound familiar? God, Jesus Christ, carrying his own, the cross. I mean, don't miss the, the, the thing here. And the interesting thing, too, one thing I didn't point out is Isaac, by this point, is probably 13. The word, he's not a little boy. He's, he's probably strong enough to overpower a 100-year-old man. So there's a lot of, we never, we never hear from Isaac in this whole thing, except when he goes, hey, Dad, where's the, where's the goat? But the idea here is there's a lot of faith in Isaac here, too. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both of them went up together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And uh, Isaac said, behold, there's that word, the fire and the wood, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the land for the burnt offering, my son. So both of them went up together. Do you see the, the, um, the familiarity, the love between these two? My son, my father. And then God, and Abraham, Abraham still doesn't know what's going to happen. What all Abraham knows is what? That God keeps his word. And, and I want you to let that sink in because God will frequently call you to do things that are completely ridiculous. I mean, not ridiculous. They are, they are, they require you to trust in past experiences with God for what he's calling you to do in the future. The word, does anybody know what the word, the word for faith is in Greek in the New Testament? It is the Greek word uh, pistis. Okay? And the word for faith and the word trust are the same word. How many people do you think believe that faith in God means that you believe that God exists? I believe in God. Well, good. Demons believe in God, too, according to Jesus. Faith that God calls you to is not just believing that he exists, because everybody believes that. Paul says in Romans 1. Faith in God that he wants you to, is calling you to is to trust him. That's a whole different thing. Is that clear? So real faith, faith is not an intellectual assent to a truth claim. I believe God exists. Faith is trusting God that he will keep his word and acting on it. And how do you learn to trust somebody? By trusting them and by experience. So Abraham has, to your point, Wilma, Abraham has trust in God and faith in God because so far, every time that Abraham has relied on God, God has delivered. Where in your own life have you relied on God and he delivered, to you? he delivered you through something? Or somebody you know? That's where faith is forged. It's not believing that God exists. Big deal, you believe God exists. Faith is believing that God exists and then doing what he says because you believe he's going to take care of you. I've, I've, my, my nephew, Tyler, uh, is right now at Paris Island in boot, in boot camp to be a Marine. He's a great kid. I'm so proud of him. And he was leaving. I saw he, he left on the 2nd of January, and I, we spent New Year's Eve up there with him. And I said, I said, Tyler, just, I said, don't forget faith in God. He said, well, yeah, I believe in God. And I said, no, no. Faith in God means not that you just believe that he exists. 
It means you trust him. He said, really? And I said, yes. Every time you think of faith in God, don't think of just believing he exists. Think about trusting him, because you're going to need that in boot camp. <laughs> right? And he, he goes, I'd never thought of it that way. And, and we just got a nice note from him this morning about that very thing. So the point is that Abraham is, wants, God wants Abraham's faith to be trusting. And so that's where this test is coming from. Abraham took the fire and the knife. They went, both of them, together. And Isaac said, verse 7, to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the both of them went together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. It's so graphic. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, like he always does, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Fear God meaning he's in spot number one, right? Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Uh, two things there. An angel, when an angel appears, an angel is not uh, you know, like, a, like the mailman where he brings a message from God. A, a, an angel is actually a, 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 kind of like a lineman in a football game. He protects the recipient from the direct experience of God. In the Old Testament, before Jesus made us righteous, to experience God firsthand would, have, would, would kill you. So whenever you see an angel, the angel is there to protect you from God, protect the recipient from God's direct presence. So the angel is not just a bringing a message. The angel is speaking for God himself, and that's why he says, from me. The angel does. When, God, when the angel calls to Abraham to, let, to drop the knife, there's a, a sense here in the Hebrew which is critically important, and that is that the Hebrew, Abraham is literally... Uh, on the downstroke. I have a, there's a great painting. I haven't been able to find it, but I saw it once when I was younger. It's a picture, and this, this scene has been depicted in art many, many times. There's an image of Abraham with the knife, and here's the boy, you know, bound up and, you know, on the altar with his eyes bulging out. And he's like this, and actually he's on the downstroke. He's coming down, and then you see his hand open, and the knife falls out. There's an angel that's like this. Wait! In other words, Abraham has even come down to kill him. It's like, it's like a last minute thing. <laughs> huh? Last the last second thing. It's a great, if anybody finds that picture, let me know. It's a great picture because Abraham is just fully determined. Isaac is terrified. The angel is like, wait! And is, and is the hand like out and the knife falling out. It's just a beautiful, and just shows you how close to the rail the whole thing came. Couldn't tell you. The question is, why does God come to Abraham? Well, Abraham also always gets a theophany from, uh, from God. He hears him, right? He hears him in an experience. This must, this must have been a visual appearance. Since it just required action, whereas the other thing just required, it required action from God's side of the picture, whereas before it was just Abraham's the Right. Here I am. This required an actual Maybe he just needed the angel to get his attention before it was too late. I don't know. But clearly, the angel, it's the, he's, the angel is, must have appeared because he sees it. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold... Oh, let me just finish that up. Um, I know now that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That term for fearing God, just, what does it mean to fear God? Anybody know? What do you think it means to fear God? Does it mean to be afraid of him? Actually, it kind of does, in a way. But not in, a sense of being, not in a sense of being fearful that he's going to beat you up. It's not like you're fearful of an intruder breaking into your home or an MS-13 gang member or something like that. What the fear is a sense that you are completely aware that you are inferior to that. You are at, you're at the mercy of that being. Does that make sense? So Abraham realizes you fear God, meaning Abraham's... Abraham's idol has moved from Isaac 
is now at, Abraham's God is no longer Isaac. It's now God as it should be properly ordered. And the angel says, now that I, now that I see that you fear God, um, I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your only son from me. And then this is a cool thing. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes. There's that expression again. Looked up and sees something which God has revealed to him. And looked and behold. There's two idioms <laughs> back to back. Lifting up your eyes means to see something directly that God has revealed to you. And behold, whoo, here's a game changer. Ready for this? And Abraham lifted up his eyes and behold, behind him, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. His horns, yes. Caught in a thicket by his horns, not caught in a thicket by his thorns. <laughs> and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of who? His son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of, on the, mount of the Lord it shall, it shall be provided. Um, if you read in Romans... Chapter 8, Paul, no, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1, Paul, Romans chapter 4, Paul makes the very same claim that this ram in a thicket is not just a ram in a thicket. That ram in a thicket was put there by who? By God. As a what? As a sacrifice, but as a sacrifice in place of Isaac. Okay? So what we see here is God bringing a lamb, a ram, from God to be sacrificed in the place of somebody else. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Paul makes this case in Romans chapter 4 that this ram prefigures Jesus. The, the, the technical term is substitutionary, ever heard this before? Substitutionary atonement. Meaning that one being, a lamb or the lamb of God, Jesus, at, at his crucifixion, is substituted for you. What I'm saying, what I'm trying to point out to you is the, this E100 is all about setting up, studying themes, because scripture is full of these themes, biblical theology. And the one thing we see here with this Isaac story, yeah, we see God testing Abraham and Abraham's faith being strengthened and Abraham's um, affections being properly ordered that God is his primary and Isaac is his secondary. But we also see something amazing about God himself. And that is that God provides a substitution to be killed in the place of Abraham's son. Does that make sense? Is it warm in here or something? You guys seem like you're sleeping. <laughs> yes. The Lord will provide. That's right. God, Abraham had said that the Lord will provide a lamb, my son. How Abraham knew that? By faith. Abraham knew God so well that he knew that if God tells him to do something, he's going to keep his word. This is the whole point of the Christian walk, right, is to learn that God actually keeps his word. And Abraham had learned faith by, by leaning on God in the past and seeing that God kept his word, and once again, he's done it. Yes? Because early on, when, he, when, he, when God told him to go sacrifice his son, Isaac, uh, he, he said that when his son asked him, he said, God will provide. That's right. So he, never, he had faith that he was never going to he had faith that something was going to happen, but he was willing to do what God told him to do anyway. He was willing to kill the boy. There's no, the, the Hebrew is a little strong, a little clearer here in the action-oriented nature of what Abraham was getting ready to do. I doubt if Abraham was going, okay, God, okay, God. I, he, just, he just did what he was told. But he also knew, because God had done it so many times before, that God would keep his word. And let me just say this too. God... Um, Learning to trust God is a process, right? People, you learn to trust God by trusting Him. You learn to trust anybody by trusting them. And then when you see that they're trustworthy, your trust is increased, right? If, if Raleigh says, hey, I'll pick, up, uh, pick, up, uh, pick you up at the airport next Tuesday at 4, and I'm waiting next Tuesday at 4, he doesn't show up, 
Am I going to trust him? No. But if he does show up next Tuesday at 4, and I'm sitting there with my bags and he pulls up, I've just learned something about Raleigh, and that is he's trustworthy. So you have trust, whether it's with a person or with God, is always the same. You're, you're forced to lean on him, to trust him, and then see if he provides the proof and the evidence that he's trustworthy. What do you think, Bill? You got a comment? Yeah. Uh, all this time, where I've been thinking about uh, God being a, uh, a very compassionate person. Yes. Uh, he could have been very uh, contriving if he would have asked Abraham to kill this man. Yeah. In other words, uh, he could have solved a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> the world would be a very different place if he had. But, but again, the God is not... But God, but that's a good point. Bill said, why didn't he just, Abraham, God just told Abraham to kill Ishmael? Would have solved a lot of problems. But see, the problem, here's the thing, that's a good point. God is not asking Abraham to solve the problem. What God is asking Abraham is to remove the idol of his heart, which is his son Isaac. Because Abraham's entire identity is caught up in the boy. And we all have them. I mean, consider it for your own heart where your idols are, because you've all got them. We all, I have them too. Ishmael is not to the same level of importance in Abraham's heart as Isaac is. And if Abraham is going to be crystal clear in his faith and trust in God, he's got to have God as his number one spot. Make sense? And that's the whole point of the story. It's not really about Isaac at all. Of course, Isaac learned to trust God too in all this. Poor guy. But, uh, but it's to... Prove to Abraham once again that God, and you, that God is faithful. Yes, uh, Raleigh, and then I got a couple more. Yeah. We had established earlier uh, sessions that God doesn't live in time. Right. Uh, therefore, he must have known the outcome of uh, the cemetery of Abraham and Isaac. That's a good question. Uh, we talked about the temporality of God, if God does not exist in time. Yeah, I think that's kind of an invalid way to look at it, because God always... Does God know the future? Well, he already, he already exists in the future. Is he omniscient? Yes. Does he require human beings to make decisions and those decisions have outcomes? Yes. If you can, fi if you can figure that out, I'll buy you a burger because no, people have been trying to figure that out for 2,000 years. How do you reconcile God's omniscience and human free will? It's a very good question. Abraham could have refused, right? It wouldn't have changed that Abraham was, wouldn't have his, Abraham's own faith wouldn't have been strengthened. It's a good question. It's a, it's a really good question. James Johnson and I have been kicking around an idea of doing a debate between a Calvinist and Arminian. Maybe we'll do that someday. That'd be fun. Over here. Uh, Going back to God speaking to Abraham. Mm -hmm. Don't you think, I mean, if we really know who God is, and he's heard his voice before, there's no doubt like if Darlene comes and says something, I know who it is. Right. Yeah, and that's a good point. And you, that's, that's right. You just know, right? That's right. Lee's, Lee's point, that's right. Thank you, Lee. Lee's point is that you just, if you are in relationship with somebody that's close to you, whether it's a human or God, in this case with Abraham, you just know. And we have, as to Martha's point, we have the added corrective and protection that if you think you hear something from God that is dissonant from what this book tells you, it's not God, <laughs> right? Because God does not contradict himself. So anyway, any, anybody else have any comments or questions? Yes. Yeah. Uh, after what you said, also, back to the angel. Yeah. Every time you read about when an angel appears, there's a great awe and it stops everything. That's right. So that he, in his mind, thought he trusted God. God, the angel, was there to emphasize, no, don't right. make a mistake. That's right. The angel is, and that was actually to Bob's point, and I can't prove this because it's not in the text. Why did it find it? Right. Yeah. It stops all action. It stops all action. That's a good point. And there's a lot, that's actually one thing you learn when you study scripture more frequently sometimes we just yeah sometimes we just don't know and in fact if, um, when when we were looking at the writer did Abraham know about what was going on with what was going to happen in the in Genesis 22 we don't know 
However, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the writer to the Hebrews says, by faith Abraham, we should look at it, by faith Abraham knew that Isaac would be, would be resurrected. So, so, we, so somehow Abraham knew that. And the, we don't know that from Genesis, but we do know it from the book of Hebrews. So it's good stuff. Paul. Right. Our call is not to figure all these things out. Our call is to be obedient to God's challenge to us. That's just it. You know, people, people will say to you all sorts of things about, you know, we spend so much time trying to work out problems that, right? We spend so much time worrying. Jesus says, why do you worry? That's a good question. If you, if you really trusted in God's provision for you, and really learned that lesson over the course of your life, you wouldn't worry about anything. Because you really, there's not a whole lot of things you can control anyway. Some of it you can, but most of it you can't. I'm looking for that, that text in Hebrews here. Yes, go ahead. Um, Lynn, you had a quick comment? The thing that keeps going through my head is, I think it's Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's right. And that's just, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's a good point. Two important words there. The word fear, meaning God is in spot number one. He is in your primary place, is the fear of the Lord. And wisdom is the ability to make a decision, to discern right from wrong. So if the fear of the Lord, understanding God, having him in place number one, knowing your scripture, knowing that what, the, what the word says, and, can, and knowing how to make a right decision based upon that, the fear of the Lord is, Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? It is, yes. One more quick comment if anybody has one. Yes, Hebrews 11 what? 17. Hebrews 11, 17. Um, thank you, Lee. What's that? Thank you. Hebrews 11. <laughs> Hebrews 11, what was that again, Lee? 17, thank you. Yes, so, so to your point before, when you ask questions about scripture, sometimes the text you're reading is silent. Sometimes other parts of scripture explain it to you. So, for example, Hebrews 11, verse 17, by, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able, listen to this, he, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So Abraham, according to the book of Hebrews, was planning to kill the boy, and that God would have raised him. But it sure does. There's all sorts of Christological prefigurements in this that I just want you to see them as they're kind of, all these little nuggets that kind of get sprinkled through the Old Testament that find their, their fulfillment and their consummation in the work of Jesus Christ. So, whew, too much? Good. Um, any other further comments or questions? And then we can wrap up. Wilma. I'm getting the whole point of this was that my take away would be that no matter our life, That's right. That's right. That's right. A woman's comment is we shouldn't put another person in the place of God. You shouldn't put anything in the place of God. And, and actually, that's a really good point. Let me segue for that for just one second. Anything you put in God's place will fail you. If you, put a per, if you put your entire life's meaning on the fact that your kids get into an Ivy League school, for example, whatever the thing might be, you're, you will place so much burden on that, per, that child to fulfill that promise and you will destroy that person and you will, they will never be able to satisfy you. Does that make sense? Or if you look at money or whatever the things might be, all, these are all good things, right? Kids and money and all these things are boat, boats and golf games and all these things. They're not bad, but the problem is when you put them in the spot of becoming your primary thing, you are doing an incredible disservice to yourself and that thing, whether it's a person or money. So think about that one. 
Somebody said that to me once. If you make your child, and this when I was a younger father, I had to learn this one. If you make your child the focus of your life, you will, you will be so demanding of that child that they'll grow to resent you. And you grow to resent you. And actually, it winds up undermining the very thing you, and then you wind up causing the person to be a disappointment. It's just, anyway. So the fear of the Lord, keeping God number one, is the beginning of wisdom, making sure that he is in spot number one. So, all right. Thank you, folks. Shall we pray? And then we'll go. The Lord be with you. Lord God, we thank you for your word, which communicates to us clearly uh, what your will is for us. Lord, we ask you would open our hearts and our minds and our, our eyes to see uh, your word speaking to us tonight. Help us, Lord, to trust you in all things, to put you in spot number one in our hearts, and to walk the Christian life in conforming our lives to your will for us. We thank you, Lord, for Abraham and his witness, his story, his testimony. We pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful like he was. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.